and it was at that age poetry arrived in search of me I don't know I don't know where it came from from winter Well, hello, my friends at futureprimitive.org. I'm very happy today to be on the phone with Kim Rosen. Kim Rosen has touched listeners worldwide with the healing power of poetry. She is an award-winning poet, spoken word artist, healer, and teacher of self-inquiry the co-creator of four CDs of poetry and music. Kim has delivered poems, lectures, ceremony, and workshops in a myriad settings from the crypt of Chartres Cathedral to the New Orleans Superdome. She is a graduate of Yale University with an MFA in poetry, and she has been on the faculty of Wisdom University the Omega Institute, and Kripalu. I would like to give uh, Kim the opportunity to introduce herself. So, Kim, if there's something you'd like to add to this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, hello. I'm so happy to be with you, Joanna. And um, I, I think that about says it on the outer level. On the inner level, um, what comes to me in this moment to add is that I am not an expert on poetry, but perhaps I am uh, a bit of a teacher of the inner life. And uh, for me, poetry is a very powerful way of navigating the interior life. Um, what I've spent my life doing uh, is walking with people into themselves, into the domains of themselves that they haven't fully inhabited, haven't fully known, or haven't dared to experience. And I've done that as a therapist and as a spiritual teacher and on my own, in my own personal navigations. And um, then uh, I came upon poetry at a crisis point in my life and found that it was, for me, a most powerful tool, if not the most powerful tool, for opening doors inside me that I had not yet found the key to. Mm-hmm. So let me, let me just add that, that, that really I'm far more concerned with the healing and opening and um, awakening of the inner life than I am with poetry, and I'm greatly indebted to poetry for being the lantern that I can shine into the darkness uh, as I do that navigation. Beautiful, Kim. I appreciate what you just said. And uh, you took me back to a time where I had to be so vigilant about my outer life because of the way of my childhood that I would say that Rilke, the poet Rilke, became a door to a little bit of an inner life for me. So I guess what I'm saying is, could you speak about how we can access an inner life, per se? Since before language, poetry has been the way that human beings conveyed the, the almost the ineffable stuff of the inner life, the emotional, the spiritual, the relational, what we might now call the right brain components of the inner life. And I say since before language because poetry actually arose for human beings before language, before words solidified into finite sounds. There was poetry. There was sign language for practical stuff like, Mm -hmm. hey, there's a mammoth coming up behind you. You better turn around. I I told you that in hand language. But 
um, my heart swells when I see you and all of a sudden I feel like the moon is falling out of the sky. That I told you in some kind of what the archaeologists called musa language, which was a cross between song and language that could convey the interior sounds so that when the interior, the sounds of the interior life so that when Rilke says something as simple as, I am too alone in this world, and not alone enough to make every moment holy. I am too tiny in this world, mm -hmm. and not tiny enough just to lie before you like a thing, small and silent. I want my own will, and I want to be with my will as it goes toward movement. And in the silent, sometimes hardly moving times, when something is drawing near, I want to be with those who know secret things, or else alone. Mm. So that's Rilke, translated by Robert Bly yes. into English. His original language was German. And yet he's speaking a language that we all know, I think, uh, that anyone who has ever paused to breathe, to touch into the feelings that um, flow below the surface of our lives, will, will resonate with some of those feelings that Rilke is talking about. And so... Um, in another poem, he says, um, uh, You called out by your senses, reach to the edge of your longing, become my body. Let everything into you, beauty and terror, keep going. No feeling is forever. And so he's, he's inviting you into a road map of the inner life here. Reach to the edge of your longing. Let everything into you, beauty and terror. As are all of the poets that I love, of course there are other kinds of poetry. There's poetry, you know, there's the poetry I was introduced to when I was in high school, which for me pretty much annihilated my love of poetry yeah. until about 1994, and that yes. was a long time. Yes, yes. Um, there's the poetry, not that there's anything wrong with it, but it was the poetry about war, it was, it was, it was the Odyssey and the Iliad, which of course does have beautiful surgings of emotional life, but that wasn't what I was learning in high school. I was being taught about what an, you know, a dactylic tetrameter was, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden this magical language, which I had loved as a child, you know, Dr. Seuss and, and um, Mother Goose and uh, beautiful John Ciardi poems. I had loved poetry until I learned that it, it wasn't this magic. It was iambic pentameters or dactylic tetrameters or Shakespearean sonnet rhyme schemes. And all of a sudden, the poem, the poetry that had been a language of magic and spellmaking became something that I couldn't relate to, and I let go of it. But really, when we recover poetry, when we recover the parts of ourselves that, of course, related to poetry when we were children, um, it is a language that not only with its words, but also... Um, what I, the word I use is shamanically through through the biological implications of mm -hmm. rhythm and sound. Mm -hmm. It can change us. It can even change us physically from the inside out. I've been uh, reflecting a lot lately on where does language come from. In other words, how has it happened that our mouths uttered the particular sounds that became the words that we used? And um, what uh, lately what I've been uh, thinking is that language is born from longing. Mm. What a beautiful thought. Yes, well, I think, I think that's what... Um, what I imagine to be true when I think of the original poetry that emerged from the Neanderthals and from 
I'm not sure how to um, say this word, but it, mm-hmm. it reads like Homo ergaster, E-R-G-A-S-T-E-R, uh-huh. who were the first, the earliest hominids who started using language. It's exactly what you're saying. Language emerged out of longing yeah. because they could communicate what they needed to through sign and movement uh, for that which was practical. Mm-hmm. And then it was not enough when, when longing becomes intense. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, Kim, uh, sorry, um, I wanted to ask you about the power of the medicine of poetry in your journey and also what you convey to people. Well, for me, um, I referred earlier to a crisis point in my life, which happened around 1994. I've had a a lucky life in many ways, and one of the ways is that from a very young age, from the time when I could think or read, I was fascinated and curious about the inner life, and I started reading about psychology and spirituality, and so by 1994, I mean, how old was I? I don't, I can't even do the math. Mm-hmm. But um, I was, I was fairly well established as a spiritual psychotherapist and a spiritual teacher, um, and I had, a, I had done a lot of my own inner healing by then because I had had the good fortune to come across. Uh, ways, therapies, and spiritual teachings that really had helped me. And I hit a dark spot that no, none of the therapy and none of the spiritual teaching that I had access to could touch for whatever reason. And I was feeling suicidal. And I didn't really see any reason to go on living. And this was particularly challenging in that my job at that point was, of course, one of inspiring people towards their own uh, fire of creativity and passion and um, their own sense of the peace of who they are. And I didn't have any peace of who I was. Um, And at that point, this deus ex machina, this total coincidence happened, if there are mm-hmm. such things, mm-hmm. and I was cleaning my house and found a battered old cassette tape under a radiator that I, you know, that I didn't recognize and it had no label on it, and I picked it up and blew the cat hair off of it and um, <laughs> put it in the cassette tape recorder and started doing the dishes, and this man's voice speaking poetry to music mm-hmm. filled my house. And, and I had no idea who this was or where the poetry had come from or where the tape had come from, but I, it was like some door inside me flew open, and what I had thought was untouchable and unreachable in me was touched and reached and I just dropped everything and lay down on the couch and I just sobbed Mm -hmm. and um, eventually I just I contacted everyone who had been in my house um, for the last week or so and indeed it was a tape that had fallen out of the handbag of one of my clients (laughs) Um, and she told me that the man's name was David White and I uh, in those days, David White, now David White is very well known, and I don't know that what happened for me would happen for you, but I looked him up in the phone book, and I called him up, and he picked up the phone. <laughs> and um, so he was my first inspiration back to poetry, and he was my first guide that showed me that there was a poetry of the inner life that was unlike the poetry I had been introduced to in high school and college, which was either poetry about things that I didn't relate to, like the highwayman came riding, riding, riding up to the old indoor, and nobody told me that that was a poem about um, young love Mm -hmm. and lust. They forgot to tell me that part. I think if they had, it would have been way more interesting for me. Um, but at that time, I didn't know that. Um, and, you know, the, the poetry in college was often so inaccessible to me 
that I couldn't uh, understand it at all. So David was reciting poems, his own and other people's, that spoke directly to me. The poems of Rilke, mm-hmm. you mentioned Rilke earlier, and the poems of Mary Oliver, the poems of Rumi and Kabir. And like a starving person, I began gorging myself on these poems. And I, I decided that since I really was healing my depression and I really didn't have any creative impulse on my own, or so I thought, that what I would do is what David did, which is David has many, many poems learned by heart. So I decided to start learning poems by heart, but I didn't think of it as learning by heart then. I thought of it as in, I thought of it in the word that most of us use most of the time, which was memorizing. Mm-hmm. And as I began to, quote, memorize these poems, what happened was that the meanings and the rhythms and the sounds and the what I call, and you use this word, the medicine of these poems, mm-hmm. which is very graphic. It's not just a metaphoric use of the word medicine. Mm-hmm. I'm talking biochemically here. Yes. The medicine of these poems went into me and opened places in me so that profound emotional release would happen, mm-hmm. big release of tears and laughter, memories would come as I spoke these poems that I had no idea that I even remembered, mm-hmm. visions, hopes, possibilities, um, even physical healing because the poem changes your breath and the rhythm of the language changes your biochemistry. So as I would speak these poems aloud, there would be a vibrance um, in that, that would return to my body and a relaxation. I think people would probably call it a change in the brain wave of my brain that opened my brain to a level of innovation and inspiration that hadn't been available to me in my locked-in patterns. Mm-hmm. And... Um, It was then that I realized that I wasn't memorizing these poems. I was learning them by heart, which um, the Tibetans talk about writing scriptures on your bones. Mm -hmm. Writing uh, the earliest teachers, uh, forgive me, the earliest earliest students of the Buddha Mm -hmm. couldn't read or write, and so they would write the Buddha's teachings and this is their words, on their bones, meaning they would learn them by heart in the complete understanding that by inscribing such wisdom so deeply into the body that you're literally making new synaptic connections in the brain. You're literally changing the texture and flow of your blood and your heartbeat and your um, brain chemistry. So that's what happened for me, and um, uh, eventually I started speaking these poems to other people. They became more and more a part of my work, and then um, actually in the middle of writing my book, mm-hmm. uh, I had a life crisis that was really, it turned out to be a um, an invitation or perhaps a command, you mm-hmm. could say, from the mm-hmm. universe to say, to see, okay, can you walk your talk, Kim? I, uh, I lost all my savings to Bernard Madoff in December of 2008, yes. which was a very traumatic event for everyone, I'm sure, who endured right. it. Um, but for me, because I had only just invested it two months before, um, and then poof, it was gone. And although in the moment of hearing this news on my voicemail, I felt like I should have been doing something productive, like calling an accountant or a lawyer or, mm-hmm. a, I don't know, a policeman or something. Right. Um, in fact, this poem that I'd never actually really liked that much, and I certainly didn't know it by heart, this poem came in and took control of my brain in that moment. Mm-hmm. And it was an extraordinary experience and probably a kind of shock, but 
In the moment of receiving that message, I it didn't occur to me to turn to poetry, I have to admit. I mean, there may be people somewhere in some culture in the world, like in Ireland, where I do a lot of work, and people understand that the only appropriate re reaction to a life crisis is to turn to poetry, but that was not what I was inculcated into. I wanted to turn to the law, yes. something American. Mm -hmm. um, but this poem, like a vice, took over my brain, and you'll understand why when I tell you the first yes. few stanzas of the poem. It's a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye mm -hmm. called Kindness, Yes, and it begins, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go before you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. So I'm standing there, and this, these first few lines are playing over and over in my mind. Lines I didn't even know that I knew, but um, it made sense because uh, I had had some of my students work with the poem, so I'd heard it a number of times. But I didn't know any more than that of the poem. And all I could do, all I wanted to do was Google this poem mm -hmm. in that moment, mm -hmm. which I did, mm -hmm. and began reading the poem over and over, and the poem really became my prayer and went so deeply into my life that it made that experience of losing all my money a profound opening, as yes. you can imagine, just yes. hearing the beginning of the poem, a profound opening to all sorts of flowing out of kindness of myself and flowing in of kindness of the people around me who really constellated to support me in a way that many people told me, you know, we've always wanted to give to you in this way, but there was never any opening. Mm -hmm. You always were so self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. And so the poem Kindness taught me about being in resonant connection with other people. The, the root of the word kindness is the word kinship, mm -hmm. kin, being of the same kind. And um, that poem really became my medicine and my prayer. And it still is, actually, as I continue to walk through the ramifications of that event in my life. May I recite the whole poem? I was going to ask you if you would yes. tell us this poem by heart. Yes, yes. So it's Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go before you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you know the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel to where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead at the side of the road. You must see how this could be you how he, too, was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing inside. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it until your voice catches the thread of 
all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes or sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye. It's from her book, Words Under Words. And it's also in my book, Saved by a Poem. Yes, I, I want to say at this moment that the, the book by Kim Rosen, Saved by a Poem, is published by Hay House. It's called The Transformative Power of Words. I think this is a good moment to bring in memory and the four chambers of memory. Yes, my book, um, my book is really about how poems can become medicine in our lives, regardless of whether we learn them by heart or not. Because if you find a poem that you love, that speaks to something in you, if you find a poem and you don't turn the page to read the next poem, but you just read that poem over and over and you realize this poem has come to you as a messenger and a teacher, there are many ways to take it into your life and have it become your companion, which include learning it by heart, but are not limited to learning it by heart. I can't tell you the number of people I've met just on the street or on airplanes who have a crumpled up index card in their wallet of a poem that they read periodically. And there are other people, my students and friends in my life, who are now keeping poetry journals where they write, and, and I like to handwrite them in a beautiful book. They write the poems that have spoken to them at different moments in their lives. And when you look back over these poems in the order they came to you, you really have the wonderful opportunity to see uh, uh, an autobiography of your past unfold before you through that anthology that you will have created. And one way to take a poem very deeply into your heart, into your bones, as the Tibetans might say, mm -hmm. is to learn it by heart. And this is what I started to do and what really opened me to the biological medicine of poetry when I was in that crisis in 1994. Um, I, I have found over time that the greatest gift of learning a poem by heart is what I call the gift of forgetting. <laughs> and it takes a little kind of catching your breath and listening to that several times to really believe me. Mm -hmm. But the greatest gift a poem can give you when you decide to learn it by heart is by reflecting to you the moments that you forget. So the gift of forgetting yes. is the most powerful aspect of learning a poem by heart. And no matter how often I say this, the habit, at least of the Western mind, is so focused on achievement. Um, you know, I think it's a, I think to some extent it's a function of capitalism. Like we want to have that poem. Mm -hmm. That it takes a little bit of retraining to realize, to remind oneself that the gift of the poem is not going to be, is not going to come only or even mostly in being able to speak this poem aloud whenever you want to, although that is a huge gift, and I will never put that one down. It's one of the greatest delights of my life. Mm -hmm. But the real gift is going to come in what I learn about myself on the way. And so the gift of forgetting is an absolutely accurate map of how the poem 
is showing you where you have not fully navigated yourself. Mm. And the poem is offering itself as a guide to take you into dimensions of yourself that are less familiar to you. So what do I mean by that? I mean, let's take a poem that I learned by heart many years ago. Um, it's a poem by Rumi, translated by Coleman Barks, called Love Dogs. Mm -hmm. So here's the poem. One night a man was crying, Allah, Allah. His lips grew sweet with the praise. Until a cynic said, I have heard you crying out night and day. But did you ever get any answer back? The man had no reply to that. He quit praising and fell into a fitful sleep. He dreamed he saw Kadir, the guide of souls, in a thick green foliage. Why did you stop praising? Because I never heard anything back, the man said. <laughs> This longing you express return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. In your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. Listen to the moan of a dog for his master. In that wine is the connection. There are love dogs no one knows the names of. Give your life to be one of them. So there's one line in that beautiful poem that I never got right. And actually, I noticed as I was saying it just this time, I didn't get it right this time either. Now, it's not, I don't want to get it right because I'm, you know, a compulsive, correct, obsessional, sure. um, got to get it right person. Mm -hmm. I want to notice where I get it wrong because wherever I get it wrong, it's because the poem is calling me beyond my familiar patterns. Mm -hmm. And that forgetting, that moment of forgetting is a doorway to look through to say, wow, what patterns within me is this poem rattling so that ultimately I might get free of the cage of my own patterns mm -hmm. and know my vaster self better. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, when I learned the poem, I would always say, um, the grief you cry out from draws you towards union. Your pure sadness is the secret cup. Now that's not the line. The line is, your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. Wow. Yeah. And so what that, the gift that that gave me was a fierce and tender look at how I have um, amputated the part of me that wants help mm -hmm. and how hard it is for me to inhabit fully not only that in me that can reach out and say, I need, I want help, but also to have faith that that very need, that very reaching out, which I have, because of my early childhood, vilified my needs um, and my reaching out, mm -hmm. that that reaching out not only a good healing thing to do, but it's actually a key to my connection with God. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's what I mean by the gift of forgetting. Um, even now, when I said the poem just then, I said, I didn't say your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. I said, in your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup. It seems like a teeny weeny little thing. But I can sense in myself that by throwing a few extra words in there, mm -hmm. I don't have to come up as close to, bone to bone, skin to skin, with what that line's saying. I, you know, I, I unconsciously throw in a few extra words to pad it and defend it a little bit. And it's, it's very rich for me to notice this because 
these are aspects of myself that when I do open to them and allow the healing that comes when I do, I am a much more human person. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I, um, I, f- I felt if, in fact, language comes from longing, longing to be with the beloved or the other mm-hmm. the other creatures then perhaps poetry speaking the words of poetry returns the longing to inside our bodies oh how beautiful what a beautiful thought a beautiful thought i i will i will hold that thought <laughs> as medicine thank you it, yeah it comes from words I picked up in um, in your book. Uh, uh-huh. Somewhere it talks about grafting a poem. Yes, 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 yes. How how we how we need to um, when you graft a tree, you need to make the trunk and the branch raw in order for them to connect, and allowing the poem to to. Uh, merge with us in that way we have to make ourselves raw to the poem yeah yes yes well i love somewhere someone said i can't remember the author but you quote it in your book inside human beings is where god learns that's your friend rilke that's rilke okay (laughs) wonderful yes yes So I would love for you to speak about Thunder Perfect Mind. You speak Ah. about when you were in California by the beach. And um, I think it's Jane Hirshhorn? Hirschfield. Hirschfield, exactly. Who translated that uh, Gnostic text. And I'd love you to speak about where where this is grafted in your body. I love that piece of um, scripture so deeply, and um, I've never been asked about it before, so thank you. Good. Uh, the Thunder of Perfect Mind is one of the Gnostic Gospels. Um, the Gnostic Gospels, as I understand it, came from several sources. Um, some were the Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. and some Gospels were found in the Nag Hammadi Desert and have been preserved because of the climate there in an urn. And one of the Gospels found in the Nag Hammadi Desert, which date from around the time of Christ until about 300 years after his death, um, was a voice of the Divine Feminine in... Uh, the poem or the scripture, The Thunder Perfect Mind. Yes. Um, Elaine Pagels has written beautifully about, just so inspiringly about the Gnostic Gospels. Mm-hmm. Jane Hirschfield took this very fragmented um, gospel and she created a version of it that really flows for me. And there's something, I, I felt that if I could learn this poem by heart, this scripture, that I would be completely awake, that I would completely have um, been absorbed into the, the, the deepest truth of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, here, let me give you some of the first lines of this, and you'll understand what I mean. Um, I am the first and the last. I am the honored one and the scorned. Mm -hmm. I am the whore and the holy one. I am the wife and the virgin. I am the mother, the daughter, and every part of both. I am the barren one who has borne many sons. I am she whose wedding is great, and I have not accepted a husband. I am the midwife and the childless one, the easing of my own labor. I am the bride and the bridegroom, and my husband is my father. I am the mother of my father, the sister.
sister of my husband. My husband is my child. My offspring are my own birth, the source of my power. What happens to me is their wish. And it goes on and on. It goes on for pages mm -hmm. like this with these opposites. Um, she says, why you who love me, do you hate me and hate those who love me? You who tell the truth about me lie, and you who have lied now tell the truth. You know, for I am knowledge and ignorance. I am mm -hmm. modesty and boldness. Mm -hmm. I am shameless. I am ashamed. I am strength and I am fear. I am peace and all war comes from me. It's very revolutionary and it's very fierce in its inclusion of all that we human beings tend to see as duality, as mutually exclusive yes. opposites. Paradox. Yes. And so I felt that if I could take this, which somehow for me, I knew this to be truth in terms of my experience of whatever this this is of this thing of consciousness is this mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. um, and so in the book I talk and you mentioned I talk about the, the four chambers of memory mm -hmm. and it's something that I completely made up myself uh, if you study memory um, in a scientific way usually they talk about um, two chambers they talk about short-term and long-term memory even though there are gradations within each of them mm -hmm. um, but in my experience the process of taking a poem or anything else into my being goes through not two stages but four stages and um, when a poem has made it to what I call the fourth stage of memory it is with you forever Everyone, everybody listening has something in the fourth chamber of memory. You have twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are, up above the sky so high. Or you have A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K. It's what um, some people call rote memory, but I don't like to call it rote memory mm -hmm. because it's much more magical than that implies. But the beauty of the fourth stage of memory, the fourth chamber of memory, is, and this is just a little aside perk that I like people to know mm -hmm. about, is that anything that's in your fourth chamber of memory is not going anywhere, even when your brain is traumatized mm -hmm. or dementia sets in or um, you have a stroke or a tumor, if you lose the ability to speak, these things that are lodged in the fourth chamber of our memory, for whatever mysterious reason, they never go away. So there's story after story of people who cannot speak because of a stroke, who can recite the poems of Wallace Stevens. Wow. There are stories of people who have been completely taken down by dementia and never make any sense except when they uh, recite Wagner's operas in German, wow. word for word. This was my friend's mother as she was dying. My friend didn't even know she, her mother knew Wagner's operas in German. Uh, yeah. uh, and there's many, many stories. My favorite is in the book. My friend Bonnie Gintis, who's a doctor, when she was in her um, residency, uh, there was a man who had a stroke and couldn't speak and was using the very lugubrious, um, you know, alphabet boards to, to say, I want a glass of water. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, somebody came into the room next to him and started playing on a tape recorder the soundtrack of South Pacific. Mm -hmm. And this, this uh, patient who hadn't been able to speak started singing to the tune of Bali High, which yes. goes, Bali High, we'll call you. You know, everybody knows it. He started singing, and I have a glass of water. <laughs> because apparently those rhythmic and musical channels in the fourth chamber of memory, apparently you can put other words in them. Wow. 
And anyway, I've gotten off on a tangent, but um, I, I find that the best way for me to learn poems is often moving. It's often walking or maybe I'm at the gym on the treadmill or um, sometimes I'm driving in the car and I, I stop at a stoplight and I read some of the poem and then I work it into my into my being as I drive along until I get to the next stoplight. Um, but this poem in particular, it's funny you should ask, I was just out at Kehoe Beach um, which is a beach on the Point Reyes mm-hmm. National Seashore here yes. in California. And I learned that poem walking along that majestic beach with the waves pounding. And now whenever I go back, it's really, it was true the other day when I went out there, I just almost feel like there are fragments of that gospel hanging in the air when I go there. Um, but I did learn the poem. I don't know if I got enlightened, but um, certainly whenever I have the incredible opportunity to recite the whole thing, especially with music, it is um, it is a completely... Uh, I am I, at a loss for words, but mm-hmm. the, 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 the stock word would be peak experience, although that doesn't seem quite right. It's, it's a completely mind-dissolving, heart-opening experience. Kim, speaking of the Divine Feminine, could one say that even if written by men, poetry is feminine? and I, I can almost hear the, the clamor of the different voices that would argue the size of that. Not my own voice in particular, but, but the voices of those I've come upon in my, in my uh, travels. And I think the question has more to do with how do we use the word feminine mm-hmm. than what is poetry, in a way. Um, you know, if, if feminine is the non-linear, life-giving, primordial self. Mm -hmm. And if the masculine is that which perhaps gives linear form and action and impact in the world to that primordial, life-giving, constantly mutable self, uh, then yes, I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> okay. But, yeah. Thank yeah. you for thank you for giving your feelings about that. I want to say that uh, Kim Rosen will be giving a um, an evening of mystical poetry on October eighth at seven thirty in Santa Fe at Santa Fe Soul, and then a day-long poetry dive, October 9th, also at Santa Fe Soul in Santa Fe. So, welcome to everybody, and also I want to uh, thank Patricia Flash, who, so to speak, turned me on to Kim Rosen, and um, I would like to ask you, Kim, um, to bring this wonderful, delightful talk around by saying whatever you wish to say. Hmm. Well, I too want to thank Patricia, who really um, gave new meaning to the poem that I recited earlier, Love Dogs. Her book is called Becoming a Love Dog. Um, I want to thank her for bringing me to Santa Fe. I'm very excited about coming to Santa Fe. And um, in my book, Saved by a Poem, The Transformative Power of Words, um, one of the things that writing this book made me realize uh, beyond what I could have imagined is the power, the revolutionary power of poetry to melt boundaries between all that we hold as duality between 
people, between warring people, between generations, between cultures, between creeds. Um, my, my greatest inspirations in doing the book had to do with um, uh, interviewing poets from, for instance, Baghdad, where Sunni and Shiite poets got together to recite poems and found the boundaries, the, the affliction between them just melting into each other's arms. Uh, or experiences I've had with Maasai girls mm -hmm. in Kenya who recite poems to their parents and the dualities between generations just melt. Um, I'm very interested in the activist potential of poetry and the reality that the poets have been the truth sayers and 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 seers of uh, our cultures, all cultures, the world over. Um, and I'm very, very uh, passionate about bringing poetry back to particularly the American people, who many of whom seem to have lost contact with that very powerful medicine that not only melts the boundary between you and yourself in a profoundly healing way, but also can take us with someone who we thought was our enemy into the place where we are one in the human experience. So that's, that's what I'd like to leave the listeners with. Um, and just, just to say, please go out and find a poem that you love and make it your companion. If you can't find a poem that you love and you have related to this conversation, it might mean that the poems that I love, you might love. And there's a list of them at the back of my book. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kim Rosen. Yeah, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. What gorgeous questions. Thank you very much. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making your own tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.